book of Genesis, we've seen God's faithfulness on every single page. Isolated uh, from the ancient world by the tune of several thousand years, it can be hard to appreciate the depth of wisdom that we find in these passages. Living in advanced societies such as ours, uh, with many protections, have us hoping and trusting in our own sufficiency uh, until crisis hits. Then we realize how much we need God and how much he's in control and how much our worldly kingdoms are built on pillars of sand. And what we need to be realizing is that we trust in his promises every day, whether in prosperity and ease or whether we are in hardship and trial. And today we are looking at Genesis 26 with some very interesting stories about the life of Isaac. Last week, we saw the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob. Uh, We saw how God was faithful to Isaac and Rebekah. We saw God's sovereignty in choosing Jacob over Esau. And this week, we're going to see this family thrust into hardship and a fight for the very survival of the promise. So I've got three points that I want to share with you guys today. The first point, God's promises stand firm despite our fear. My second point, God's promises stand firm despite hardship. And my third point, God's promises stand firm despite our past. Let's read our uh, text. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then can you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And here we see something that happens once in a generation in this area. That's a famine. The last famine we saw was back in Genesis 12, and uh, Abraham responded by going down to Egypt. And when you think of Egypt, you might think of towering pyramids, the great sphinx, that statue, and of course, the Nile River with the crocodiles and the hippos. And whenever a plague struck this area of this world, the ancient Near East, mostly due to drought, there was one place you could rely on, and that was Egypt. The River Nile reliably flooded every year, depositing rich sediments along the edge of the Nile. It was a fertile place to grow crops. And so whenever there was a famine, you could always rely on food being in Egypt. Everyone else was in starvation, 
but Egypt fares well. So where would you go? You would go to Egypt. You would go there. You would go buy grain, enough grain to survive the famine. However, Isaac is stopped in his tracks by the Lord. He's traveling down towards Egypt, but God stops him and he tells him, do not go down to Egypt. And this is important. God tells him to dwell in the land of Gerar with the Philistines. Rather than Isaac escaping the famine, he was to dwell alongside some people that we have seen before. King Abimelech. He wasn't to leave the promised land. And you might remember Abraham dwelt here as well. And as you have heard, as we're reading through Genesis, you know it's a risky business sojourning with a group of people. You're at the mercy of a people greater than you. Tensions and frictions and quarreling naturally arise as you come down there. And everyone is doing it tough in the famine. And so this naturally causes more quarreling, more tensions. And so the question on our minds is this. Would Isaac trust God and stay in the famine? Egypt represented safety. It represented food, comfort, ease. But Gerar represented potential hostility, risk, the real possibility of starvation. God reminds Isaac of an important truth. He's asking Isaac to do something hard. And he says to him, I will be with you and I will bless you. This makes all the difference. God is faithful. God will be sure to carry out every single thing he promised to Abraham. Even when things seemed bleak, even when things seemed tough, the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed once again. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give you these lands. I will multiply you. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Grace upon grace, upon grace. God is promising amazing blessing to Abraham's family purely by grace. And what does Isaac direct, uh, what does God direct Isaac to do? To walk in obedience as his father did before him. Respond to the, the promise the same way as your father Abraham did. Walk in obedience, follow my commands, trust my voice. Every generation has to take up the mantle of the household of faith and move it forward. And move the ball forward. The game isn't over. And it wasn't merely enough that Isaac was the son of the promise. It's not enough that anyone is born into a household of faith. Isaac had to respond to God's grace in obedience. And so will Isaac's sons. And as we will see, Isaac's sons choose a very different path. But God is gracious. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The reformers were very quick to add a little note to that, that the grace that saves is never alone. What does that mean? Well, real grace shown by God leads to change. Grace alone is the thing that saves, but grace is never alone. It shows itself in a transformed life. It leads to change. A real, tangible faith that you can feel that transforms someone from the inside out. And Abraham was changed. How was he changed? Because he was the man of faith. So how will Isaac be changed? The same way. Faith in his Lord. 
And those who live by faith must often review and repeat the promises of God. It helps us to maintain our sense of direction in a chaotic world. Uh, how often do we know the truth and yet we still give way to temptation? How often do we need to hear these promises again? How often does God need to repeat again and again and again his, uh, the hope that we have in him? Especially when God calls us to self-denial and suffering, which is what he's calling Isaac to do here. And our natural response when God calls us to do something hard, to take risks, to come out of our comfort zones, is fear. But is God's promise is stronger than our fear. Isaac goes down to Gerar. We've seen this guy, Abimelech, before. It's um, well, it's unlikely it's the same Abimelech, it's the same guy, uh, but they've got the same name. Why, why is that the case? Well, Abimelech is actually the title that you would give to the Philistine king. Uh, the name shows up all across history. It actually shows up multiple times later in the Bible. There are other King Abimelechs um, that live hundreds of years after this guy. So what is going on here? Well, it's a title, just like the title of Caesar for the Roman Emperor or the title of Pharaoh for the King of Egypt. You see these titles show up and Abimelech is one of these titles. They're different guys, uh, but it seems that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Here we find Isaac falling into the trap of fear as his father Abraham did before him. This is now the third time we've read a story about someone trying to pass their wife off as their sister. I mean, what's going on, fellas? Before we start judging Isaac, and ladies, I totally get the feelings of betrayal that you're feeling on behalf of Rebecca, but this wasn't just a rare chance that maybe someone might harm him. Abraham and Isaac to be terrified of being killed because they had attractive wives isn't without precedent. It's not some strange Hebrew oddity. It's a lawless time. Killing a man and taking his wife as your slave wasn't uncommon. It was something that happened. It was a feature of life during this time. It was a brutal, barbaric, cold, savage time to be alive. And Isaac... We know that this is, this is something he should be fearful of because he's been in uh, Gerar for like five seconds before someone comes up and asks him about his wife, Rebecca. Except this time, unlike with Sarah the previous two times, no one tries to marry Rebecca. In fact, they seem to keep a close eye on him because Abimelech, it says, after some time looks out his window and there is Isaac and Rebekah laughing. And immediately, this laughing kind of gives away the fact that they're married. Look, I've seen some pretty cold siblings before, some pretty cold sibling relationships, but laughing together does not make me think that there's something more going on. It doesn't make me think something weird is happening. But the Hebrew phrase here is implying a little bit more than just laughing. In fact, it's the sort of intimacy that would be completely inappropriate for a brother and sister to do during this time. It was a sort of friendly, teasing, flirtatious laughter that made Abimelech quite aware that they were not siblings at all. This just would not have happened in this way. And it's so clear that Isaac absolutely adored and delighted in his wife. However, if you're trying to pass your wife off as his sister, this isn't a good look. He's not pleased. Abimelech is not pleased to see this happy couple. He comes down, he's quite dismayed, and he confronts Isaac. Verse 10, it says, What is this you have done to us? 
One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Isaac got away with his life for a little bit, but the truth always comes out. The truth always makes itself known. God always exposes our lies, and especially if you live in the household of faith. Abimelech is well aware that sins often compound and lead to greater and greater consequences. He knows that if someone easily laying with uh, Rebecca and took her as his wife, it could have easily brought guilt upon the whole nation. He realizes that these things start wars, that these things create all sorts of conflict. The last time this happened in chapter 20, it created a huge level of curse for the Philistines in this area. But the greatest rebuke to Isaac was the shame that it brought upon God's people. They were once again landed with the reputation of being a deceptive people. It's always a shame when God's people rightfully earn themselves a reputation of being dodgy, earn themselves a reputation of being beyond the pale. And Abimelech did what Isaac should have done. Abimelech protects Rebekah. He protects his wife's honor with a strong command, anyone who touches Isaac, Anyone who touches Rebecca shall be put to death. Anyone who does what Isaac has been so afraid of happening will be put to death. Abimelech here is the strong man who does what is right. And Isaac thinks perhaps that he can get his own way through deception. And even though Isaac has been foolish and he's been rebuked by the pagan king, it reminds us that God will ultimately fight for and protect his people, even when we fall into sin. Even when we give way to fear. Because God is faithful to his promises. God's promises stand firm despite our fear. And the church is full of fear right now. God's people are full of fear. Giving way to all sorts of sins. But the church is God's bride. And God is jealous for his people. And he fights for his people. And he blesses his people even if we drag our reputation through the mud. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we should take note, because what does Paul say here? He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If great men of faith, like Abraham, if great men of faith, like Isaac, as we read through the Bible, if we see great men of faith, like David, making foolish decisions, Well, we ought to learn from this example. Because great men can still fall into acts of folly. And if this is the case, then we should take heed, lest we fall into the same trap. The failings of men and women of God do not put us outside of God's promises and plans. Because God's promises stand firm despite our fear. That leads me to my second point. God's promises stand firm despite hardship. Let's keep reading. Isaac's going to find himself in a period of hardship. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. 
Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant has dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father and the Philistines, which, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had gave him, given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. We begin this story by seeing some wonderful insights into Isaac's character. He is a hard worker. He worked land that wasn't his own. He was a tenant. And he took good care of the land that the Philistines gave him. He built up farmland. He built up fields for the Philistines. And he reaped a huge harvest, even in the aftermath of a famine. As Psalm 37, 19 puts us succinctly, God talking about his people, he says, They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. See, God sovereignly protects and provides for the needs of his people. If he feeds the birds of the heavens and he clothes the grasses of the field, he will protect and provide for his people in times of shortages and famine, in times of hardship, God will bless us. Now, our blessing might not look like the abundance of blessing that Isaac has here. It's a very special sort of blessing given upon Isaac, our great patriarch. But hardship will not overcome God's promises and he has promised to provide for us which is a pertinent reminder during times like these God always proves himself faithful to bless Isaac as he said he would but this was short-lived Isaac was blessed but the Philistines were not happy to see Isaac thriving while their flocks and fields were struggling. They envied Isaac. Now, envy is a word that we don't often hear talked about in church. What does it mean? We hear the word jealousy, we hear this word envy, and it's this strong feeling of irritation of the fortune and possessions of another person. Often we are envious that someone has more money, that someone has greater social status than us, that someone has a more beautiful wife or a more loving husband, or perhaps they're just a happier person than you, and you're envious of them being happy, and you want to tear them down. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before, before jealousy, envy, jealousy, covetousness, powerful emotions, and it drives people to be greatly upset over the fortune of others rather than rejoicing with them. It's insidious and it's more dangerous than you realize. And we can so quickly notice envy in other people, but do we notice the envy that's in our own hearts? Comparing yourself to others and desiring the things that they have is something that God takes very, very seriously. He does not take it lightly. It is ungrateful. 
it is demeaning, and it is earthly. Listen to Colossians 3.5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at the way that the envy of the Philistines begins to turn into a huge amount of quarreling and bickering, which threatens to turn into war. The Philistines, they begin this campaign of hostility there. that They're attacking Isaac and his family again and again and again. And Isaac's grown so wealthy, they envy him, they kick him out, and they're afraid that he might become strong enough to attack them. They're fearful of him. He went in fearful of them, and now they are fearful of him. Perhaps Isaac will get strong enough to start demand concessions. Perhaps he will rise up in the government and start to demand uh, more, more concessions for himself. But either way, they unceremoniously exile him and cast him out into the wilderness. This is a big deal. Isaac has a lot of possessions and now limited resources. He's thrust out into the wilderness. The only way to survive, well, the first thing you need to do is find sources of water. Luckily for him, his father Abraham had planned ahead. But unlucky for him, they had all been filled in. The Philistines, for some reason, had piled dirt into these wells to stop them up, to stop people from using them. Why on earth would the Philistines fill these wells? Water is the lifeblood. Water is the most precious commodity out here in the wilderness. So why would you do this? It was simple. As Matthew Henry notes, the Philistines during the famine didn't have many flocks and their herdsmen didn't roam very far and it stopped other herdsmen from coming and encroaching in their land. So they fill in these wells. It's kind of this idea of if I can't play, no one can play. This is how absurd envy is. As soon as Isaac begins to dig these wells again, the Philistines move out from Gerar and begin to seize the wells one by one. Their herdsmen come out and begin to seize these wells back off them and they chase him away. And this might seem inconsequential, but it isn't. This is how resource wars start. Isaac needs water. And if he cannot find water, his very existence will be threatened. And when you push someone into a corner, when you corner a lion, they fight back. And the Philistines are beginning to push him into a corner. So what is Isaac going to do? Does he assert himself? Does he fight back? Or does he retreat? But this is good credit to Isaac's character because he decides to pursue peace even though it's costly. It's a noble and admirable thing, thing for him to do. Despite this show of grace and kindness to the Philistines, they still pursue him from well to well. He digs another well. Who's there to seize it? You bet the Philistines are there, ready to take the reins and seize the hard work of Isaac. He's just worked in their fields and produced a hundredfold. Those fields are now seized. He's just dug up a well. Those wells are now seized. And every good thing that he is doing, the Philistines are totally fine with seizing it from him, taking it away. Psalm 126 to 7, a similar, similar experience the psalmist is having. He's saying, too long have I had my dwelling amongst those who hate peace. 
I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I think this has something to teach us. We as Christians seek to live peaceably with all people. We want to live peacefully. We don't want to live in hostility, and yet often we find ourselves in the middle of controversies and conflict. Just as Isaac, we pursue peace, and yet we find ourselves in trouble. But for those who seek peace, sooner or later they will find it. This is exactly what happens with Isaac. He digs a well and he calls it Rehoboth, a word meaning, or basically broad, roomy places. Room, basically. There's room for him. He'll dwell securely there. God has made room for them. He knows that. Isaac says as much. Isaac never has lost sight of the fact that God is in control, that he'll provide a place for him. And I'm sure, I mean, during this time, Isaac's stressed, he's dismayed, he's disheartened. He's got all these uh, things running through his head. He's demoralized by all this hardship and conflict. But he knew, he knew God was with him. He knew God would make room for him to dwell peacefully and he relied on God and he pursued peace and he went, well, you're going to seize this well? God will provide another well. That is faith. It was faith in the promises of God that he would bless Isaac. And God did just that. God's promises are firm. They're a sure foundation. They're a solid rock. The ground upon which we stand, even today, his promises stand firm. He will be faithful despite the hardship that we will face in our lives. In the hardship, we can lose sight of God's grace and faithfulness. However, God is always there. And he will always make room for us, both in this life and the next. This brings me to my third point. God's promises stand firm despite our past. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. From there he went up to Bathsheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there. And called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. For you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Well, God 
speaks once again to Isaac. He, he's reaffirming this commitment, his commitment to Isaac, but he's also reminding Isaac that these trials and hardships are not in vain, that Isaac's patience and forbearance with the Philistines would eventually pay dividends. God strengthens Isaac because the king of Gerar is now marching out to him with his commander of his army. And this may seem like deja vu because we have been here before. This is almost exactly the same thing that happened to Abraham with the previous king. And often those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And for whatever reason, they find themselves in the same position as their fathers did beforehand. And many parents are horrified when they see the sins and tendencies replayed in their children. When the same story repeats again and again throughout families. However, God once again is present in a real way, being faithful despite the tendency to repeat the steps of our parents. So why is Abimelech here? Why has he marched all this way? Well, you see, Abimelech is hearing reports of Isaac growing and multiplying and being blessed by God. And each report is more alarming than the last. I mean, what if Isaac decides to revenge himself upon the Philistines for the horrible way that they've treated him, for the way that they have cast him out? He rightly says to them, why are you here since you hate me? You know, well, the Philistines know that God has blessed him. And Abimelech does not want to be on the wrong side of this God. He wants to smooth over the differences between them and enter into alliance. In fact, he downplays the hardships. He downplays the evil that they committed to him and, and pretends that it was all done peacefully, that they cast him out in peace, that they didn't pursue him with their army. What would Isaac do? Something unexpected. Isaac extends the hand of forgiveness to those who have been enemies and persecutors. Isaac decides to repay their evil with good. He could have easily cursed them. He could have easily sent them packing. No alliance. After all, why do they deserve Isaac's forgiveness? He had worked their fields for them. He had dug wells for them. He had refused to be baited into violent confrontations. And he didn't repay their evil for evil, but sought peace. Isaac is in very many ways a foreshadow of Jesus. He models forgiveness to us in a powerful way. How could Isaac withhold forgiveness from Abimelech when he himself has been the recipient of so much grace? He knows very well when he went up to the mountain of Moriah with his father Abraham that God provided a sacrifice on his behalf, that he was redeemed, that he was rescued, that God provided a sacrifice on that day, and he knows that he will be forgiven. And Abimelech departs, and the text says that he departs in peace. That chapter's been closed. And God's promises stand firm despite our past. He brings peace in a tense and dangerous situation, and everything has been resolved. But has it? Esau. He marries a couple of Canaanite women, some Hittite women to be exact. And this is something that he had done in opposition and defiance to his parents. He's not concerned with the ways of his grandfather Abraham. He didn't seek a wife from his own people like his father Isaac had done before him. Not only that, but he forsakes the whole idea of an exclusive marriage altogether. Monogamy wasn't on his, uh, in his, um, on his agenda. And when we see Isaac walk down that path, and Abraham attempted to and, and 
fell in that way, but the text tells us that these two wives became bitterness of spirit to Isaac and Rebekah. Sometimes the apple actually does fall very far from the tree. And here we see Esau is a wild man. He does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases to do it. He neither desires the blessings of the promise, nor he fears, does he fear God's retribution. Esau disrespects and disregards God's promise. But even though that that's the case, God's promises will prevail. And we're going to see next week that God will reject Esau, just as he had rejected Ishmael. And for those of us who hold fast to God's promises and rest in the safety of his son Jesus, we can be encouraged. Isaac shows us how to rest in the promises of God, despite fear, despite hardship, and despite our past. Our futures may look uncertain. If we look around our world right now, there are many things to feel uncertain about. But there's one thing that we can know. God is good and he is in control and he promises to protect and provide for his people. We can trust him just as Isaac trusted him, just as Abraham trusted him, because God will fulfill his promise. And he will protect and care for, care for us from the most important thing of all, and that is death, that we shall rise again. Trust him because he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the promises of Abraham, that these promises that will bless the nations, Lord, have come and blessed us where we are here in Australia. We thank you, Lord, that you are as trustworthy yesterday, today and forever, and that we can trust in you through all things, knowing that you are good and you have a good plan, even though there will be hardship and trials and sufferings along the way. We thank you that we can look at men like Abraham and Isaac and be encouraged by their simple faith and trust of you. And Father, I pray for us that uh, intellectualize our faith and rationalize things, Lord, that we would come back to a childlike faith and trust that you are good, that you are God and you are in control. And thank you, Lord, that we are not in control. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.